Well, my name is Scott Reeble. I'm one of the pastors of New Life Church and am really thankful to be here this morning. We have deployed Pastor Travis to Gladstone. He's preaching there this morning and I have some things to talk to you about at the shared meal in a few minutes about that. And, and, and really, I have to also admit that uh, as usual, I scheduled myself to be in Wilsonville on the shared meal Sundays which is always my favorite, so <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here this morning. There you go. So, that's the, that's the best I can do on uh, telling you the truth. How's that? I say that and smile, but I want you to also recognize that the Scripture talks that way. The Scripture talks about the good life. You know, you think about it, people move to... Westland or Wilsonville because they want the good life. And they're in pursuit of what makes a life good. But their definition of the good life, their perception of the good life, is a perception that is thoroughly baked in the American dream. It's thoroughly baked in what makes someone successful in the U.S. When the Bible is also very clear about the good life, and there's, it has just much to say about what makes a life good. See, we, we tend to think of the Bible in terms of, you know, well, if I pray a prayer and I believe what the Bible says, it'll get me to heaven and I'll sort of skip the rest of the years. But in fact, the Bible talks about the good life now in preparation for the great life that is to come. And the terms that the Bible uses for that are wisdom over against folly. It is good to be wise. It is bad to be foolish. And there's just a ton that the Bible has to say about that. Even in, even in Psalm chapter 1, where it introduces us to all of these songs, it starts out by telling us there are really two ways. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season, its leaf also shall not weather, and everything he does will prosper, but the ungodly are not so. There are two ways. They're going to be not like the tree. They're going to be like the chaff which the wind drives away and they will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so even from the very beginning of the Psalms, there are these two ways. The way of wisdom, the good life. Prospering like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And then there's like the chaff which the wind drives away. And there's an invitation for you and for me to decide, are we going to pursue this good life? Or will we settle for a life of folly? The Scripture um, is really clear about what makes a life good. In, in some of the wisdom uh, literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all have things to say about this good life. In, in fact, how complex it is and how difficult it is. Job is about this good life. 
And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The good life begins with the fear of the Lord. Or Psalm 110, 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Or in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so you have here this invitation to the good life that begins by recognizing who God is and who you are in fearing the difference. Standing in respect and awe for the magnificence and the terribleness of this Creator God. But Job and Psalms and Proverbs don't tell the whole story about wisdom. There is another um, expose on the good life that we call Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes says this, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity is striving after the wind. It is all emptiness. That's vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all like running, trying to gather up the wind. He said, everything that is done under the sun, everything that is done without respect to God who is above the sun, everything that is done from a human point of view is emptiness. And so, we're challenged, right? We're challenged here by the Scripture to say the wise life, the good life, the one that uh, lives as God uh, desires now and prepares for the great life in the future, that life, that life fears God. The life that is under the sun without God as its frame of reference is the foolish life. The one that ends up like chaff which the wind drives away. It's all vanity. And this morning, the reason I start that way is this morning, we run into a psalm that is a wisdom psalm. A psalm that puts forth for us, puts in front of us this decision, what kind of life are you going to live? What kind of person are you going to be? What are you going to pursue in this world? And so, Psalm 53, you've just heard it sung, but, but let's, uh, let's read it and uh, then we'll take a look at what it says to us about the good life and about wisdom. Psalm 53, beginning verse 1. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat up My people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against him. 
You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. For Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So here in Psalm 53, one of the, there, there are several really interesting things about Psalm 53. One of them is that it's almost virtually a repeat of Psalm 14 with a few changes. But another is that it is a masculine of David. It is written to be sung according to the tune of Mahalath. But it is a masculine of David. It is a song to instruct. It is a song to, to open for you the way of life. To teach. And what does it teach us? It teaches us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the opening line tells us this is about wisdom and falling. This is about the, the foolish choice. And the foolish choice is to say, there is no God. Now, he says this in his heart. So this is not talking about the philosophical atheist, or you might say the religious atheist, the one who, you know, out and out claims there is no God, the one who mocks other people on Twitter because they believe in God. That's not this person. This person is simply characterized in his own heart by his independence from God. By his own personal lifestyle that does not take God into consideration. The fool says in his heart, it's a private kind of a a, a musing or meditation. There is no God. So, he's free to do whatever he pleases. You see, that that is one of the outcomes of whether it's philosophical atheism or whether it's secular humanism or whatever you want to call it, Living life apart from God gives you the permission, you might say, to live however you'd like. And it's that permission that you give yourself, pretending there's no God, it's that permission that results in foolishness. Foolish, the fool says in his heart there's no God. They're corrupt, doing an abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God, there is no good. And that's the introduction to the psalm. There's something else that's very interesting that I want to make sure that you recognize here. This starts off with the fool. Okay? The fool, the the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. Nabal. Now that's not important and you don't even need to remember that, except that it gives us a little bit of a clue as to how we might understand or illustrate this psalm. Because Psalm 52, okay, so this is Psalm 53, Psalm 52 was about Dog the Edomite. Right, who slaughtered all those priests. And his story is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 23. Psalm 54 okay, 
is about the Ziphites, who, well, they live in Ziph. That's why they're called Ziphites. Okay? And they report to Saul that David is hiding among them. Okay? There, that episode is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 26. So you have, you have Psalm 52 in 1 Samuel um, 23 and Psalm 54 in 1 Samuel 26. And here, in between those, you have what is in between there. Because in between... Uh, 20, uh, I've got my numbers all goofed up here in my brain. Psalm 20, uh, or 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 26 is 1 Samuel 25. And look at this. Now, there was a man named Nabal. Okay? The name of his wife was Abigail. I just love, I just love how this, this, Breaks out the story. This is like the introduction, right? The, man, the name of the man was Nabal, or Nabal. The name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. How many, how many marriages does that describe? <laughs> the woman was discerning and beautiful. The man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So we're introduced to this couple. But his name is Nabal. Right? His name is the fool. In fact, later on, what, what happens here in the story is that David has been running from Saul all of this time and he happens upon uh, Nabal and his uh, uh, shepherds who are shearing their sheep, which is, a, which is a time when everyone's happy. Right? I mean, it's like harvest. It's harvesting sheep, you might say. And they're shearing the sheep and they throw this, they're throwing this big party where there's lots of food and uh, lots to drink and David and his people have been on the run and they haven't had anything. Okay, since, since they got some bread, um, from the tabernacle, from the priests who were killed. So they come and they ask, you know, can you get, share some of this with my men? And the guy says, who's David? And why would we do that? Forget it. Okay, now we already know David, right? We already know that David is God's anointed king, his covenant representative. We already know that David is the one who is pursuing the good life. He is fleeing from a fool, Saul, and he runs into another fool, Nabal. Anyway, David straps on his sword. He has all his men strapped on his sword. They are going to go kill every single one of the men in Nabal's household. And Abigail, who is beautiful and discerning, comes to David and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't know about how foolish my husband was. Here's a bunch of food for you and your men. Enjoy. And then she ends her speech with this. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for... As his name is, so is he. You see? Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Here, enjoy this feast, right? So they did enjoy the feast and they spared uh, uh, Nabal and did not kill him. 
Okay, now that's, that's important. I'm going to come back to this story in just a minute. But I, I thought that it would be worth opening that up for you and letting you know he is foolishness personified. He has no regard for what God, who God is or what God is doing through David. He doesn't even care really to be loyal to Saul. He just simply is only consumed with himself. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so, the fool looks around and says, there is no God. The irony here, and I, I love I love how the, the Hebrew poetry just makes us sort of smile. The, 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 the fool is looking around saying, there is no God. God is looking around and saying, they're all fools. They're all fools. He looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. You do remember that introduction to wisdom that I showed you a minute ago, right? The, the beginning of, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in those who get it, get understanding. And God's looking around to see, are there any who are living the good life, who are pursuing life like I say it ought to be pursued? Are there any who are inquiring of God? Or are they all living under the sun? And here you find there's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. There's not even one. What he's doing here is he is uh, he's describing this category of chaff-like people. This category of foolish people or people who are unrighteous. The ones who Psalm uh, chapter 1 says will not stand in the judgment. They've all fallen away. They're together become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Now, you recognize some of this language because we just looked at the book of Romans. And Paul takes from Psalm 53 or Psalm 14 to expose the hearts of human beings when they are only consumed with themselves. And proves for us that you need to be reconciled to God. And he quotes this, there's none who does good, not even one. And his the, the way that I understand that, I mean, there are, there are unbelievers who do good things. There are fools even who occasionally will do good things. But the good life, the good life is not part of what they're after. This substantive Goodness. The one who pursues good things for good reasons, that's not found anywhere. They might do good things, perhaps not for good reasons. They might have good reasons, end up in not good things. There is a foolishness about life apart from God 
that is inescapable. And that is his point here. And so he, he describes this life apart from God so that we recognize them that as those who don't know up from down, don't know right from wrong, don't know good from bad, those who work evil have no knowledge. They eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. God is not in their frame of reference. And that's the main issue. Because the life lived before God is the good life. The life lived apart from God is a foolish life. By definition. And you think about this and you think about how does... How does this fit with all of the rest of the Scripture? I mean, your Ten Commandments, people get wrapped up in all of the, the last half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not, shall not commit adultery. Um, you shall not steal. You shall not covet. All those. When the main problem in the Ten Commandments are the, the, the first table, the first few. You shall have no other gods before Me. That's the fool. The fool is the one who says, No. To God. And so he describes that person and then the relationship that that person has to the people of God who eat up My people like they eat bread. They use the people of God. Just like Nabal. See, I think even when he's coming to ask Nabal, David's coming to ask Nabal for bread, he has in mind that forget it. That's, that's what gives him that reference. Then he says, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. I love that. There they are in terror where there is no terror. The driving factor in their life is fear. Now think about that. So this is describing the character of the fool. That somebody who is characteristically foolish apart from God. But there's probably no one here this morning who is not temporarily insane at least. Temporarily foolish who says, you know what, or who forgets that God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. We forget that. And so we are temporarily like this fool sometimes. And when we are, that's when we're afraid. I love the song that we sang earlier. It said... Um, my Jesus, my soul is fearless. Okay, that's not this person. <laughs> my soul is fearless. Why? Because God is with me. When God is not with you, you have reason for fear. Even when there isn't a reason to fear. See, that's a beautiful thing. They're in, they're in terror of terror when there is no terror would be how you make a literal translation of that. Because deep down, even though they suppress it, even though they say it in their heart that there is no God, they know there is. And there is this haunting that God scatters the bones of those who camp around His people. That God ultimately wins. Even though I pretend He's not here. Even though I pretend 
He has nothing to do with my life. God still wins. This is, a, this is um, an image from a battlefield with bodies scattered around. I We just started uh, the other day Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War and it just... There are some gruesome pictures of bones separated from bodies on a battlefield. And that's what he has in view here. Is that God is victorious. And the the certainty that God is victorious strikes fear in the heart of those who pretend God's not here. And then he says, you, God's people, put them to shame for God has rejected them. What a, what a stiff penalty to be rejected by God. This fool who's in great terror when there is no terror. See, he's described a lot of different ways throughout the, throughout the Scripture. I mean, one of the ways the fool is described in the Proverbs is as a sluggard or someone who's super lazy who says, I can't go out there. There's a lion in the street. Right? There's no lion out there. I just, I'm going to stay. I'm going to roll over on my bed because there's a lion in the street. There are all sorts of ways this, the, they're described, but this terror keeps them immobilized from doing good. And so, what we have here is David meditating in some respect on, I think, on this episode with Nabal and his wife Abigail and all of the foolishness of a man who is, um, who is difficult and treacherous. And then... He steps back and he says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He he ends this psalm with the prayer of someone who is not foolish. And he says, I am going to trust that salvation will come out of Zion. Now, of course, Zion is the the fortress there in Jerusalem, and he sees salvation coming from the city of God where the presence of God dwells. So it is the presence of God, actually the presence of God that the fool denies that will bring salvation. That's his prayer. God, be near me and bring salvation. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And so here is this man who is being hunted by the king who is seeking refuge from the priest and then they get killed from this fool, Nabal, and he refuses them. And he says, God, when You restore the fortunes of Your people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The psalm starts with the fool who says there is no God. Who talks about terror when there is no terror. And it ends with the gladness of those who pursue God and live 
in the fear of the Lord and pursue the good life. And they rejoice. Theirs is happiness. Theirs is gladness. The good life. The good life lived in the presence of God when salvation comes out of Zion. As opposed to pretending there is no God living the fool's life. Rejecting everything. And one of the things that's interesting, why does the fool do abominable things? Why does the fool pursue iniquity as it says? Because he thinks it's going to make him happy, right? He thinks that's the way that, that someone's happy. That's the problem in our world is that we're always struggling with the question, what will ultimately make me happy? We think it's acquiring another thing. We think it's a really great vacation. We think it's going to be, well, when I get married or when I graduate or when I get a house or when I retire. And when you're looking for your happiness apart from the presence of God, you're living life under the sun. You're living as though you're somebody who says there is no God. Because here, David puts forth the, the prospect that happiness, rejoicing, gladness comes when salvation from Israel comes out of Zion. When the presence of God enters, that's when you receive joy. See, there's no accident that we have chosen as our mission statement at New Life Church that we want to um, engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. Because ultimately, it is that soul happiness that is the manifestation of the good life. It is that soul happiness that is the promise of eternal life. It is that soul happiness that is the enjoyment of the salvation in all that God is for you in Christ. And that's His prayer here. Oh, that salvation would for Israel would come out of Zion. Now, salvation coming from somewhere else is part of what we're talking about when we're talking about the good life. That I am not the center any longer of the good life. The good life has God as its center and Christ as its Savior. Now, back to the story of Nabal. So, to tell you the whole story, right... The Abigail comes out, feeds David and his, uh, and his men. David does not kill Nabal. Abigail goes back, tells him, after he sobers up from his party, uh, what David almost did to him. And it says his heart was stricken within him and he essentially went into a coma for ten days and then he died. Okay? That's the fool. And... Once he died, David said, the Lord has spared me 
from taking His blood in my own hands. And then there is all of this um, dialogue. And it, it happens three times. This is the reason I'm pointing it out. So, then as my Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord... This is Abigail talking to David now. As your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now let the enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as a fool. Then again in verse 31, My Lord shall have no cause for grief, for pangs of conscience, for any shed blood without cause, for my Lord working salvation, or my Lord working salvation Himself. You see, what you have here is this, this distinction between working to save yourself, which David could have done. David could have slaughtered Nabal and all of the men in his family. He could have done that. But God restrained him and he has no guilt. But blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, working salvation with my own hand. So three times here at the end of the story, the, David makes this distinction that I am not working salvation myself. I am rather trusting that salvation will come to Israel from Zion. Oh, that salvation would come. And you see what David, what David does, so many of us want to make David a hero. And we want to make ourselves a hero like David in a story when in effect, David is saying the hero is the one who provided salvation and I didn't do it. And I want to suggest to you that that is ultimately the Christian message. The one that comes to us through Christ who is this son of David, this king reigning on David's throne forever. He is the one who brings salvation from Zion. He is the one, not us, we're not the ones who save ourselves. He's the one who keeps us from attempting even to save ourselves. And that's the Christian message, is that God invites you not to work your own salvation. God invites you not to do your best to pull yourself up to, to try and make all of the wrongs that you've done in your life right? Forget that. You can't do that. What God invites you to do is to trust in salvation that comes from Zion. And how many times in the New Testament is it super clear that God has sent for you a Savior? Even in the very beginning of the New Testament, right? That God has sent a Savior, Christ the Lord. The Christmas story. And all throughout the New Testament, it points us to the fact that there is this Son of David who represents for us salvation from Zion. And so our prayer really is the same as the prayer of David. Oh, that salvation would come. Oh, that I wouldn't be the one who tries to work my own salvation, but instead trust in Christ.
And that is the key to the good life of this both now and forever. May God spare us from pretending there's no God. From trying to work our own salvation, but rather to trust in Him that salvation comes from His hand. And because of His presence. And it is, it's really that that we're going to celebrate this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have here the ongoing reminder of the presence of God. The ongoing reminder that God has given to you a Savior and He's brought to you salvation in the person of His Son. So that this message, even from Psalm 53, invites us not to be a fool, and to live a life independent of God. But rather to be wise and to trust in, as, as we mentioned at the beginning of the service, the, to trust in the cross, which is to the person who's perishing foolishness, but to us, it is the power of God for salvation. And so Jesus left for us this memorial that reminds us of His body which was broken for us and of His blood which was shed for us that He might be our Savior to remind us we can't save ourselves. And so as the musicians come up and we sing the next song, I want to invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to get out of your seat and to go to the, the table in the back, the table in the front, and um, get the bread and get the cup and return to your seat. And we'll celebrate um, the fact that salvation has come for us from Zion in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll bless God and thank God for His salvation. Let's pray. Lord, great God and Father, we are humbled at the prospect that our best attempts to save ourselves won't do it. We try as we might, can do, can do thing. And so we come and we ask that this morning we would recognize that You have sent salvation. And fathers, we reflect on Jesus. May we be more certain than ever that He is our Savior. And that He invites us into Your presence, into relationship with You so that we might have not only eternal life in the hereafter, but we might live the good life now. So we trust You for Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen.